You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Mother Nature versus Life as We Know It. For the first time in more than 80 years, Southern California was deluged by a tropical storm. A broad swath of the American Southwest, including long, arid deserts, also got soaked. Lahaina, the picturesque tourist destination on the Hawaiian island of Maui, got burnt to the ground by a fast-moving wildfire that may have left at least hundreds of people dead. Weather is fickle, and climate-related catastrophes have become all too common in the U.S. and around the globe. Deadly rain-induced flooding, interspersed with deadly heat-induced fires, have also visited the Koreas, Ethiopia, Australia, Pakistan, India, Brazil, the U.K., Canada, Greece, and other countries during this still new 21st century. July 2023 was the hottest month on record in the U.S., according to National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration records, records dating back to 1850. We now live in a climate-changed world in which every season or region is host to the hottest, the driest, the coldest, or the wettest moment of the modern human era. The league tables keep changing, with each new climate disaster outranking its predecessor. We are witnesses to violent extremities that are often unpredictable and difficult to manage. We are the authors of the disasters and victims of the consequences. Mother Nature has had enough. Joining me to discuss climate change and what we can do about it is Mark Gongloff, a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion who specializes in covering the environment and climate change. He's a stellar writer and wonderfully clear thinking. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Tim. I thought we could break up our conversation today into three parts, flooding, fires, and solutions. Does that sound like a reasonable approach? It sounds like it. It's an enormous topic, and I'm happy to be here to talk about such an enjoyable, you know, cheerful topic. So. <laughs> yeah, well, it's an important topic. Sometimes the important topics aren't that cheerful. Right. So let's get started. Let's talk about the rains that recently soaked the American Southwest, just in a very basic way, what caused that? Well, there was a hurricane that formed in the eastern Pacific off the coast of Mexico, Hurricane Hillary. There was really, really hot water and it went really deep. And so the hurricane went from zero to 100 really fast, went up to a category four really quickly. And then a couple of freakish things happened that sucked that hurricane right up into California, one of which was a giant heat dome sitting over the central 
part of the U.S. that kept air from blowing to the east. And then you had ordinarily California's waters are really cold and that kills hurricanes and tropical storms. But this was so strong that even that cold water couldn't really kill it. But also, it was also not as cold as it usually is because the oceans are hotter than they've ever been right now. And so it weakened dramatically to a tropical storm by the time it got to California, but it still contained a whole lot of water by the time it got up there and kept dumping water all the way up into Boise, Idaho. And so is that a one-off? You know, as you noted, colder waters have traditionally protected the California coast, at least, and some of the inland regions from hurricanes and storms like this. But if the oceans are warming, that logic may change. Yeah. Do you suspect that this is only a one-off? Well, I described it as sort of a freakish event, but a couple of those things are going to be with us for a long time. Hotter oceans, heat domes. I saw a scientist say that this used to be a once in 108 year event, and now it's a once in 30 year event. And as the climate keeps warming, it could become more frequent than that because some of those conditions aren't going away. Yes, the water off the coast of California will remain cold. It will remain hopefully rare, but not nearly as rare as it used to be. Whenever I try to understand when these things are happening, I think about those like snow globes or those toys I had as a little kid, hmm. you know, where you would shake it up and different things would happen inside, you know, the sphere. But now all of the conditions that we're used to for understanding how weather develops have shifted. So when the entire earth shakes like a snow globe, the cause and effect is radically changed in ways we're just starting to experience now, right? That's right. I mean, that's a great analogy. You know, used to think about climate change, or at least for a long time, I thought about it, maybe other people did too, is just you'd hear about these tiny temperatures. You'd say, well, it's going to rise by two degrees Celsius. And if you and I walk out of the building today and it's two degrees Celsius warmer, we're barely going to notice, right? That's you know maybe four or five degrees Fahrenheit. A lot of people would find that more pleasant. You might think, well, Canada's going to be warmer. Wisconsin's going to be warmer. Everything's going to be great. What's the worry? And I think that's one of the reasons people haven't been as worried about it as maybe they should be. But what we're discovering is that if you apply even that small amount of extra heat, we've warmed by about 1.1 degrees Celsius so far above pre-industrial averages. If you apply just that small amount of heat over an entire planet for a long period of time, you get weird things that happen. And so you can see Siberia it doesn't rise up to like 80 degrees Fahrenheit. It rises to 100, as we saw earlier this year, which is just an incredible thing to think about. And Canada is much hotter, and that's one of the reasons, and we can get into this later, why we're seeing record wildfires there this year. And so it's affecting wind patterns, it's affecting jet streams, it's affecting ocean currents. It has all kinds of things that we are discovering and living through right now. You know, it's interesting when you just brought up the idea of data points. What do two degrees Celsius mean mm -hmm. when it's abstract? And for a long time, scientists and climate specialists have been looking at this data and seeing the changes and warning us but a lot of it felt data-driven, prepare for the future. If you don't prepare for the future, the world your children or your grandchildren live in might be adversely affected, probably will be adversely affected. But we weren't feeling dramatic change in our daily lives. Now, lo and behold, we are. You know, smoke is clogging our lungs. And as these floods have proven, their water's washing down our streets and into some of our homes. And it's no longer about the data. It's about lived experiences. And maybe this year in particular is a turning point in terms of people's awareness that it isn't just the data now. We're, we're seeing what climate change really means day to day. That's right. The future is here. The future is now. You can't even call this a new normal. This is a road. We're on a path to a much, much worse new normal if we continue down the road we're going. With El Nino this year, 
you mentioned July was the hottest month. It was the hottest month on record so far. August looks like it's going to set another record. And we're talking about maybe going to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial averages for this month, for this month alone. Again, very abstract number. It doesn't make any sense to a lot of people when they hear that. But the effect of that tiny change in temperature is what we're seeing now. We're seeing multiple disasters happening. We're seeing heat domes over the middle of the country, massive flooding in China and India, wildfires in Maui and Canada, massive heat in winter in South America. It just goes on and on. Corals dying in Florida. This is with just 1.5 degrees of warming. So we are living the experience, as you say now, and if there is one hopeful thing to take out of this sort of miasma of disaster, it's that it is, I think, I hope, starting to wake people up to the reality of what's going on. Yeah, think and hope are interesting concepts right now because we can get into climate change denialism later. I want to ask you a really basic question since we're on water in this opening act. Tell me a little bit about the mechanics of flooding. Why do floods occur? There are a few different reasons. On the coast, it happens when you get a big storm surge, and especially if it happens during high tide, as we saw during Hurricane Sandy. You had a hurricane came, big storm surge at high tide, flooded the coastal area. Another way you get is if you live on a river and you get a bunch of rain dumped and the rivers overflow their banks, creeks overflow their banks, you get river rain flooding. Now, all those things are affected by climate change, of course. All those things are made worse by climate change. The other weird thing we're seeing with climate change is just sudden bursts of water coming out of nowhere. Because, you know, when you talk about the snow globe shaking up, climate change is about energy. And the hotter the air gets, the more energy is in there, and the more snow is dancing around the globe. And that has all kinds of effects. And one of the effects is it holds more water. And so when you get rainstorms, when you get regular thunderstorms, as we saw in Vermont and New York recently, that wasn't a hurricane or anything like that. It was just a big kind of a bad storm, but it dumped tremendous amounts of rain. It dumped like months of rain in a period of a day, just like we're seeing in California. In fact, it wasn't the stat on California that they expected to get a year's worth yes. of rain in three days. That's right. And we're seeing things like that happen all the time. We're seeing it in India. We're seeing it in China. We see it in Vermont. And so what happens is you get all this rain coming all at once. It overwhelms our systems. We're not designed to handle this. You know, you've got these drainage systems and culverts, the things that run under bridges so that it doesn't swamp the bridge. All that stuff was built for periods of time when you might get an inch of rain at worst during a day. You know, now you're getting five or six inches of rain and all that stuff gets overwhelmed. And so that's a big factor in, in why we're getting some of the flooding we're seeing now. You know, predictions when Hurricane Hillary first formed were much more dire before it was downgraded into a tropical storm, it became a tropical storm. If it had stayed a hurricane, what might have happened that didn't happen? We would have seen a lot more flooding, a lot more destruction. You could have seen more scenes like we saw in Vermont, where a lot of more people had to be evacuated. People did have to be evacuated in parts of California. And one of the lessons we can take from what happened with Hillary is that Local officials were prepared for it. They saw it coming. In Vermont and New York, you didn't quite see it coming. You had no idea. You saw a storm coming, but you didn't know you were going to get that kind of rain. With Hillary, fortunately, everybody was scared about it, and they had time to prepare people. And they so, could track the storm. Exactly. They could track the storm. They knew it was coming. They could tell people to get in their houses, get out of dangerous areas. And so they saved a lot of lives doing that because it could have been worse even with the—we did get a lot of rainfall, even though it wasn't as much as people expected. But yes, it could have been much worse. We really got lucky. And, and, you know, we're rolling the dice with nature all the time. And sometimes we come up lucky, as we maybe did with Hillary. So one of the distinctions you're pointing out is that there's some flooding 
you can anticipate ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of flooding you can't. Yeah. And that's going to put a lot of burden on communities to plan for the unknown. And of course, even with the flooding that you can predict, we saw Hurricane Sandy coming, right? And it still caused tremendous destruction. At some point, there's only so much planning you can do. And then you have to prepare in advance for these things by building up better coastal defenses, building better culverts, building better drainage systems, things like that. So it's not just about, oh, a storm's coming, everybody, you know, head for the hills. It's about we are hardened against these disasters that we know are coming. And we still haven't really done that as a country, not only with flooding, but also with wildfires, as we can discuss later, too. Let's go overseas for a minute. There's a lot of places we could go and we talk about flooding. But Pakistan resonates with me as one of the most traumatic, you know, victims of floods in the climate change era. It's annual almost now, but in certain recent years, it's also been just devastating with tens of millions of people dislocated. And in many parts of the country, they still haven't recovered. Does this hit developing nations? You know, economically developed nations have measures for dealing with some of this. Does flooding hit economically undeveloped countries in more severe ways. No, for sure. Yeah. They don't have the infrastructure to begin with. Maybe they don't have good governance that can help with relief afterward or preparing people for disasters ahead of time. A lot of these places in Pakistan, India, they have monsoon seasons that they get regularly, but those monsoons are turning out to be much more destructive than they have ever been before. So there are a lot of ways that they are unprepared for this. I will say, of course, we can't feel too great about how we respond to things in, in the U.S. and in the developed world either. We have a lot of our own issues, which we can get into. I'm thinking about, I visited the Virgin Islands last year, and, you know, that's a U.K. protectorate. They had a massive hurricane there five years ago. They're still rebuilding from it. And when I talked to the locals there about it, they said that the only way they got some of the things up and running was local billionaires, uh, Larry Page, and people like that pumped money into helping to rebuild and get infrastructure up and running there. But there are still buildings that are wiped out there from a hurricane that happened five years ago. So you take that kind of issue and multiply it by 10 or 100, and you get what you see in like Pakistan and other places like this that don't have any infrastructure at all or any way to help the people recover from these disasters. Yeah, I reported from Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And that's, for the Caribbean, a much more developed territory. And they're still struggling with the impact of that event. All of this raises, I think, a pretty interesting issue, which is the global north versus the global south. Because the global north created the industrializations in many different countries, primarily Western Europe and the U.S., it's now moved into China and India, that's created a lot of the forces that have caused climate change. And while the global north seeks to mitigate those forces, the global south is dealing with the impact of climate change in a more ruthless way. And then also, as those economies attempt to modernize, they're being told not to do what the global north did when it was creating all the wealth that came out of the industrialization era. So there's an enormous amount of tension here that doesn't seem easily resolvable to me between the global north and the global south. Yeah, there's a lot of unfairness there. As you say, the U.S. and Western Europe are responsible for the majority of the climate change we're seeing now. They pumped out the most emissions over the past several decades of any other countries in the world. China has caught up a lot recently, but they're still lagging the U.S. in terms of emissions. And the U.S. has cut its emissions, but not nearly enough. 
this goes from the high level to the low level to the personal level. Wealthy people in this country are responsible for more of the emissions that this country produces than poorer people, but the people of lower income and marginalized people suffer the brunt of climate disasters in this country, and they're suffering the brunt of climate disasters around the world. So they're angry about that. They want money from us. They want reparations of a sort from us. And of course, the West or the global North doesn't want to give that money to them. But there is an issue. There's a big issue here, a big conflict. They want to develop and they they have a right to develop and they aren't responsible for the climate change. They have a right to develop. They need air conditioning because it's getting hotter. They need air conditioning to survive, right? It's a matter of life and death for a lot of people in these countries to have AC. They have to run that some way with electricity. If we don't help them somehow develop that electricity in a green way, in a sustainable way, they're going to go to the coal plants they already have running. And There is an argument to be made, some people would disagree with this, it's a controversy, that you need economic growth in order to produce the financing that can lead to a greener future. And these countries deserve to develop the way we did. Now we in China produce solar panels and wind turbines and all that neat stuff. These people have to get a chance to do that too. But we can help shortcut around the whole We're going to destroy the planet for 50 years before we finally turn green. We can help shortcut that whole thing by just going ahead and giving them the money they need to do green development right now. And it's a hard argument to make here in the U.S. Congress, for example, but it's an argument we need to be having or a conversation. The U.S. Congress. Don't get me going. Yeah. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, Mark, to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll come right back. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Mark Gongloff, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist specializing in the environment and climate change. Mark, we just spent a chunk of time talking about floods as one manifestation of climate change. Let's change direction and talk about heat. Despite all of those major storms and floods, we're also living in an unusually hot era. Are those things contradictory, fire and water? Not at all. In fact, they're part of the same thing. This energy we're talking about, this extra energy that goes into the atmosphere that holds more water, that same heat also leads to drier spells, more droughts. You can see this in Hawaii. We're talking about the Maui wildfires. Hawaii is a perfect example of this. The southwest sides of those Hawaiian islands are protected by mountains from trade winds that come down from the northeast. 
And those trade winds bring a bunch of rain to the northeast sides of those islands. On the northeast sides of those islands, they're getting more rain than ever. On the southwest sides, they're getting less rain than ever. They're drier than ever. And so that's one of the factors that led to the Maui wildfires. It's, you know, there was extreme drought on the southwestern side of Maui down there. And of course, you know, they'd also done away with plantations, uh, banana and I think sugarcane plantations, and replaced them with like this dry grass. And when you have drought and climate change, it gets hotter, drier. The undergrowth gets drier faster. And so you have all this tint. And becomes like kindling. Exactly. I was just going to say, yeah. And so you have all that and all it takes is a spark to light all that up. And that's exactly what happened in Maui. So that is what's happening sort of in the world writ large. You have drier dries, hotter hots, and wetter periods of rain and storms. Climate change also essentially increases both the frequency and the intensity of these various events we're talking about. Is there more we haven't discussed that's behind that kind of vortex of each event almost feeding on its predecessor? Yeah, we talk a lot about like tipping points and there are things like the Atlantic meridional overturning current, which is just this big conveyor belt of water that goes from, you know, the South Atlantic up to the North Atlantic that controls all kinds of weather patterns in Europe and the U.S. A changing climate, hotter seas is affecting that. It's slowing that down, which is causing droughts in Africa that are leading to political unrest in Africa and, and wars. And it's all connected in different ways. You know, Canada, wildfires in Canada, hundreds of miles away, affected the air in the U.S. to the south. One of the factors that caused the big wildfire in Maui was a hurricane that was hundreds of miles to the south and just sitting in the middle of the Pacific. And you would think that that would be harmless, but it was causing these hurricane force winds to blow up into Maui. And so you had the high winds that helped drive the fire when it got sparked. Like a bellows that yeah, people would use exactly. to, to get the logs in their fireplace roaring. Exactly. And so the planet is all connected. Something that happens in the Antarctic will affect the weather or a disaster in Europe. And again, you know, you've got all this extra energy in the atmosphere making these disasters more likely. I mean, there have always been wildfires. There have always been hurricanes. There have always been droughts. All of these things have always happened. But by ratcheting up the energy level in the atmosphere, we're making these things more likely and more unpredictable and more destructive when they do happen. There's so much of climate change currently that feels to me like sci-fi movies coming true. You know, I'm a Blade Runner fan. And when the wildfires in Canada turned, you know, the New York sky orange, it looked very Blade Runner to me. It was very Ridley Scott out there. It was there, very yes. Ridley Scott. And maybe this is our punishment. We have to actually live now in the sci-fi movies we make. But another kind of facet of sci-fi made real is heat domes. Like the, the term heat dome you know, invokes in my mind, I think exactly what it is, but it's also so extraordinary. Cause I have this image with this giant atmospheric flying saucer sort of just sitting and hovering over a section of the country and not letting anything escape from its perimeters, in this case, heat, and just sits above it and traps the heat and cooks everything beneath it. Am I offering a crude description of what goes on? Actually, that's a really good description of what a heat dome is. It's like a lid, giant lid on a pot. The jet stream, you know, again, this is, we talk about climate change's effects. Climate change moves the jet stream around. It makes it wobble in a wider track than it usually does. Usually it flows in a nice predictable pattern and helps air flow from west to east. With climate change, you will make the jet stream jut up to the north and just sit there for a long time. And that's part of the reason we get these heat domes. It doesn't allow the air to escape. 
it keeps air trapped over one part of the country for a really long time. And we're experiencing that right now in the U.S. And in fact, you know, you talk about disaster movies. I think it was on the day after tomorrow, there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a screenshot of like five hurricanes all happening at once. Well, somebody, there was a real picture that somebody sent around earlier this year of four massive heat domes over the planet. One over the U.S., one over the Atlantic, one over Africa, and one over India. Just these massive heat domes. And it was like the planet appears to have gone haywire. And, and of course, in the day after tomorrow, movies like that, when they see that up on their screens, they go, oh, good God. Yeah, yeah. You know, and again, it's happening in reality. It is, it is. And, and some of us did say, oh, good God, and I hope more <laughs> of us did. But yeah, we are, we are living through that. But yeah, that's what a heat dome is. It's a giant lid that keeps air trapped in place, doesn't let the heat escape, doesn't let cold air in. You know, that's one of the reasons Phoenix cooked at 110 degrees plus for 31 straight days earlier this year. And, you know, Phoenix cooking, I was there a couple of years ago in the middle of the last time it got very thoroughly baked. And I was at the time writing about the water levels in Lake Mead and what was happening to the water supply in the Southwest. We have these towns that we've built in the desert that were probably never meant to be inhabited in the way that we inhabit them. But electric grids, roadways, and of course, air conditioning have made places like Phoenix or Las Vegas inhabitable, at least inhabitable in far larger numbers. Obviously, there were indigenous people who lived there quite well for a long period of time before we displaced them. But the current world we're in right now is telling us this isn't sustainable. Yes, as you say, people lived in those places for thousands, tens of thousands of years before. But a couple of things that were different is they had acclimated to the heat because they didn't have AC. It wasn't as hot. They also had adjusted their architecture, their lifestyles. You see it all over the world. People live in very hot places, but they build buildings to let air flow. They don't work in the middle of the day. What we have done is we've tried to take the typical American lifestyle with a car and a big house and a bunch of air conditioning, and we never have to suffer through the heat or suffer through any kind of like physical pain. And we've tried to transplant that into the desert. And one of the things about those indigenous peoples is that when the water went away, as it did periodically, the civilizations went away too. Like they fought over water and they killed each other off or they left, they moved on. We are not doing that. We're choosing to stay there and keep fighting against nature. But nature is currently winning. We're running out of water. The Colorado River, which you visited, Lake Mead is drying up. They're at all-time low water levels there. They're starting to fight over water there. They're starting to have big conflicts. Well, over. just like the indigenous people, I was thinking that exactly. we brought up that great element of this is that the Colorado River was never designed to serve the number of states and the amount of people that it's now being called upon to serve. Millions and of people. And so you have states now fighting each other for access to the river. Yeah. And we're straining electrical grids. If you build these McMansions and sprawl them out across the desert or around Phoenix, you have electrical grids being strained and... We're having to rethink the way we build these cities. There's just no, no escaping it. What happens to the human body when it's exposed to extreme heat? We have a lot of exterior manifestations of climate change. Obviously, we're talking about flooding and wildfires. But our bodies as well can't sustain the kind of atmospheric temperatures we're now encountering. Yeah. As human beings, we evolved in a part of Africa where if you think about your favorite temperature. I mean, this is not everybody. I know some people who love it when it's 100 degrees. I hate it. But if you think about your favorite temperature, it's like 74, not humid at all. We evolved in a part of Africa where the weather was like that pretty much all the time. And so our bodies are designed to like thrive in that kind of environment. So, and we can live in extremes. We can live at the poles. We live in deserts. Humans can live anywhere. But 
our bodies are designed to maintain a certain level of heat, and it is very easy to overheat us. A great book that I recommend about this is called The Heat Will Kill You First. A very, again, a very cheerful what a happy title. Very, very Thank cheerful title. Thank you for recommending that to our audience. Yes, Mark. yes. It's something to read at bedtime for happy thoughts by Jeff Goodell. It's a great book, and it talks about how the human body responds to heat. He tells some horror stories I won't get into here, but it doesn't take long to sort of overheat a human body. And you can be very healthy, you can be a marathon runner, and you can get overheated very quickly. And you can drink all the water you want. There were firefighters who were fighting fires and drinking gallons of water to stay hydrated, but they still overheated because it's not about the water you drink. The water you drink helps you sweat out, but if it's too humid out or if your body temperature rises to a certain level, the only thing that you can do is to bring that body temperature down. And what we saw in places like Phoenix recently is they were taking body bags and filling them with ice and putting people inside the body bags filled with ice just to like cool them down enough. Because you start to get organ failure, you start to get heat stroke. And you can see that right away if you're out running or something in the heat and you feel dizzy or you feel disoriented, you are starting to suffer from heat stroke and you need to like stop what you're doing and go get cool right away. Now, let's, lot... let's think about that for a minute. Modern civilization has brought us to the point where we're sticking people in giant ice bags yeah. to make sure they can survive. Yeah, it's not a, not a good sign. You know, let's talk a bit about the Malibu fires of 2022, which capped a few previous years of fire. Were there any lessons from the fires that ravaged Malibu? They also ravaged Napa. They were among, again, the most vivid examples of climate change not being abstract but coming into people's homes, coming into people's vineyards, coming into people's streets. Mountains were stripped naked of trees and looked prehistoric in their wake. What lessons came out of those fires? Learned a few different things. I mean, first of all, obviously climate change is making fires more frequent, more destructive. Another thing is we are moving into these urban wildlife interfaces more and more, testing the boundaries, moving into nature partly because we don't have affordable housing in the cities. You know, people are living in the wilderness out in California because they can't afford to live in downtown San Francisco or L.A. because it's just too expensive. So we're pushing people to the margins. And again, that's where the bad climate stuff happens. Another issue was the electrical wires. Pacific Gas and Electric has been blamed for about 30 of the wildfires that have started in California since 2017. They deny a lot of that, but they did pay a $55 million settlement last year to avoid criminal prosecution in two of the big wildfires. This is, again, part of our issue with not being hardened against climate disasters. We have these above-ground electrical lines that are aging, that need a lot of maintenance. When we're running wires out to houses in the middle of this urban wildlife interface, you're putting these things in contact with very dry trees. Same thing happened in Maui, allegedly, or supposedly. Well, in Maui, it was dangling wires contact yes. with yeah. the underbrush that you mentioned earlier. Exactly. Not trees, but it was initially started by this kindling we talked about. That's right. And electrical wire was involved in that, too. Yeah. So what's the solution to that? Well, you bury a bunch of electrical lines underground, but think of the cost of that. And again, this is one of the things we were talking about, the cost of helping emerging countries, developing countries against climate change. We have to harden our own country against climate change too, but it is enormously expensive and politically controversial to do that. I have found Canada's recent struggle with wildfires to be compelling, scary, humbling, all the things that climate change makes you feel. But the other thing it raised for me was this idea of climate havens, which you've spent a lot of time writing about. Canada recently had to evacuate the majority of its population from the Northwest Territories because the wildfires that were approaching parts of British Columbia 
were devastating. And Canada is well to the north of us, obviously. It's known for snow and ice and many other things. And it's not immune from climate change's reach either, is it? That's what we're finding out is like nothing is immune. There's an article I read, and this goes back to the idea, the concept that climate change or global warming is just a gentle turning up of the global thermostat by a degree or two. You know, what's the big deal? It's going to make Canada more pleasant. We'll all go live in Wisconsin. We'll all go live in Buffalo. Warmer winters. Warmer winters, more farmland, just fertile farmland in Siberia. What's the problem? Well, Siberia is not just fertile farmland now. It's getting up to 100 degrees. You've got Siberian permafrost that can thaw out and release all kinds of prehistoric diseases. Canada is drying out and heat domes can settle over Canada too, maybe less likely because of the jet stream. But anyway, it gets really hot there, we're finding out, hotter than we had expected and hot enough to help spark these massive wildfires. Vermont is listed as maybe the biggest climate haven in the United States, and they were all underwater just a month or so ago. There really are no climate havens. I mean, as we talked about, in New York, we were suffering. We had an apocalyptic scene outside this building because of wildfires that were hundreds of miles away in Canada. We are all in this together is the message here. There are really no havens. There are places that will deal with it better. You know, places at the tropics will be more consistently under stress and uninhabitable than, say, Wisconsin. So maybe you want to move to Wisconsin or maybe you want to move to Buffalo, but you no have to way. be prepared there. <laughs> but maybe you want to be prepared there for climate change's effects to reach you, too. Nowhere to run to, baby. Nowhere to hide. Yes, yes. Let's take another break, Mark, and then when we come back, we'll talk about solutions or at least approaches to all of this, trying to find the brighter side in this challenge we're all facing. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with the great Mark Gongloff, columnist extraordinaire, talking about climate change. Mark, we've been talking about some of the most apparent manifestations of climate change, flooding, drought, wildfires. We're leaving frost off the menu today so we can devote part of the show to solutions. I'm inclined to say that the first step in all of this is for everyone to take climate change seriously and stop the charade of saying it's a media-invented myth. You don't have to agree with me, but that feels like a useful first stop. That'd be a good first step. Admitting you have a problem is always the first step to recovery. <laughs> Uh, you could also look at it as I kind of feel like most of us have moved on. If you think about it in the stages of grief, I think, you know, denial is the first one and then anger and then bargaining. I think a lot of people are now in the bargaining phase. I mean, when I write a climate column, I still get on social media and in my inbox, a lot of people saying, oh, it's a myth. The climate's always been changing. Scare tactics. Exactly. Most people don't agree with that now. About 70 percent of the country agrees that climate change is real. 
They may disagree about why it's happening, but most of the country agrees that humans are causing it at this point. And if you go to Congress and talk to individual Republican Congress people, they'll tell you they, they admit it's real, they admit it's happening. But now the issue is what do we do about it and how fast do we do something about it? And this is why I think it's the bargaining phase. It's like, okay, maybe it's real, but do we really have to you know, drive electric cars? Do we really have to put wind turbines out in the ocean? Do we really have to do all this? Do we really have to overhaul our economy? We don't really want to do that because it scares us and we're worried about economic growth. And I can get into how much the destruction of climate change is going to cost us way more than the stuff we need to do to prevent it. But anyway, they don't think like that. Whatever. That's the phase we're in now. And so I think my thing is getting to the next phase of acceptance and realizing, okay, this is a real problem. As we've been discussing, this is a real problem right now. It's affecting us right now. And we need to start making some changes right now. And I do, again, as I said earlier, I think the one hopeful thing to take out of this is that maybe we're being smacked in the face, almost literally, if you have to go outside New York with a mask on, as opposed to inside three years ago, you have to go outside with a mask on just to be able to breathe normally. If your house is about to catch fire out in Malibu, you can't avoid, you can't escape these impacts, and maybe it will make people think harder about what we can do to mitigate this in the future. So let's talk about some of the entities that participate in solutions. Let's start with government. We could go down a rabbit hole just talking about the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the National Flood Insurance Program that it sits underneath it as manifestations of the U.S. government's effort to deal with this. But do you have thoughts about proactive, smart government actions that we know can help? Well, first, we really need to overhaul them. FEMA has always been controversial. It's radically underfunded. We saw it in Hurricane Katrina. We see it again and again and again. It struggles to respond to the disasters, and we're seeing more of these disasters, and so it needs to be bulked up to respond to them. It's about and, to run out of... For a minute, when we, do, when we talk about mindsets, mm -hmm. is states or citizens who are say they're anti-government mm -hmm. or they don't think the government can help, you see time and again after there's a natural disaster, whether it's a flood or a hurricane or wildfire, they actually call on the federal government for assistance and want FEMA on their doorstep as soon as possible. For sure. Everybody's a libertarian until you get into your house is knocked over by a hurricane. And FEMA is about to actually run out of money. And speaking of hurricanes, hurricane season hasn't even really gotten started yet. And FEMA is about to run out of money because we've already had so many billion dollar disasters in this country that it just doesn't have the money to handle many more. And speaking of which, you know, the National Flood Insurance Program is also about to expire. Congress is about to re-up that. And this is another just inefficient, wasteful, you know, 5 million people in this country rely on that for home insurance, but it heavily subsidizes wealthy homeowners who are building McMansions on the coast of Florida, and it doesn't help out the people who need it the most. It also hasn't updated its risk assessments for climate change. It hasn't updated its flood models for it's flood maps. Change. It's flood maps. People in Vermont didn't think they were in floodplains, and oops, they discovered way too late that they were in floodplains. And that's going to happen more and more often. And so we're nowhere near prepared. So we haven't made the economics of flooding rational. We're starving these agencies because we're not putting a price on our lifestyle and on the way we... We're not properly pricing the risk of, and, of climate And pricing change. consumption. Water is too cheap. Yeah. Certain forms of energy are mispriced. Well, this gets into, when you ask about the bigger level things that government can do, the number one thing that I think this government can do, which every other developed country in the world, aside from Australia, has done, is put a real price on carbon. We have to start charging people for pumping carbon into the atmosphere. And instead, what we're doing is we're still subsidizing fossil fuel companies. We're still subsidizing fossil fuel use and consumption. 
that is going away. We're starting to take gas stoves out of homes. Controversial. Every step of this is controversial, right? Pry my gas stove out of my cold, dead hands. All of this is controversial, but we're starting to do that, but we need to do that faster. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act last year was the biggest climate bill we've ever had, but it's a bunch of incentives. It's a bunch of, we'll give you some money if you build a wind farm or whatever. We need to start cracking down now. We need to start getting tougher on just the wasteful burning of carbon dioxide and energy. So, you know, talk about pricing. That's what we need to price is this has a huge price on our society and we're not adequately reflecting that. And then the second thing we need to do is that IRA put in place a lot of clean energy investment and that's great, but it takes years and years and years to get this stuff connected to the grid. It can take a decade for a wind farm to go from like the planning stage to actually producing energy for somebody. And that's just way too much time. We don't have a decade. We've got months or years at best. And the grid itself yeah. is a crazy quilt of different state systems. It's That's not right. big enough. It's not expansive enough. Not connected. And it doesn't, it's not connected enough. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't generate enough power to meet some of the green solutions that we want to embrace. That's right. If we want to have everybody driving electric cars in a couple of years or by 2035 or whatever, we need a lot more charging stations. I got an electric stove in my house earlier this year, and I had to rewire my kitchen because my house was built 100 years ago. It was built for like you know, one plug or whatever. And so I had to rewire my kitchen, get a new electrical panel in the basement. Cost a lot more money than I expected, but we're going to have to do that across the country. You know, if we're going to electrify everything, we need to upgrade all of our electrical stuff. We need to hire more electricians. There's an AI-proof career idea for you <laughs> if you want. We have to rebuild our infrastructure for this. Again, costs a lot of money, but if we're going to meet our goals and cut emissions and keep these disasters from getting much, much worse, which we can still do, then this is the kind of stuff we need to do. I suppose talking about what the private sector should do dovetails with the public sector, but is there anything the private sector can do that we haven't landed on? Yeah, no, the same kind of stuff. And I think they have been leading the way. I mean, during the Trump administration, he got us out of the Paris Accords. He tried to undo all of the stuff that the previous administration had done. But in the meantime, plugging along in the background, private industry was, you know, electrifying and they were getting a lot of this stuff done and the rest of the world was doing that. And so... The market forces are working in, in that direction, and they just need to keep doing that. They need to be brave about it, and I think they still are. You know, there's this whole anti-ESG movement happening, but people are still investing in green energy, at least. I think even if you get a CEO who feels squeamish about, you know, whatever, woke politics or whatever, they still realize that they don't want their warehouse to burn down or flood. They realize that it's cheaper to run a plant on solar energy than it is on gas or whatever. So they're getting those financial incentives just from the market, which is one of the few optimistic things we can say here today. And, and maybe they don't want their grandchildren to live on a burning marble. I mean, you would think. Yeah. Lastly, what about individuals? What can individuals do that they're not doing? I think people dutifully try to recycle. More people are adopting EVs, electrifying their stoves. Are there any big things that people need to do en masse as individuals that would help things? The biggest thing is help elect politicians. I don't care what party they are, but politicians that take this seriously and want to do something about it. Because you as an individual, you can get an electric car, you can electrify your house, you can get rid of your pets. Pets are a big climate change thing, but you shouldn't get rid of your pets. If you have pets, keep them. But if you do all these things, you will reduce your carbon footprint by, I don't know, by a few tons a year. 
Walmart can do some of these things and reduce its carbon footprint by millions and millions of tons a year. So your individual carbon footprint is not that big in the grand scheme of things. And one of the things we have to do as people is stop feeling guilty about this and stop feeling hopeless about this. And I think it's this sort of evil genius that the fossil fuel industry came up with the idea of the carbon footprint about you know 15 years ago or so and said, you know, look at how much you're burning. Look at how much carbon you're pumping into the atmosphere so that we would feel guilty about it and feel helpless about it. You can still maybe take a few flights less, maybe get an electric car if you can afford it. Again, the wealthier people in this country can afford to make the bigger changes. All those things help. Being conscious consumers helps. You know, you help drive the market. You help raise demand for sustainable things. But ultimately, our voices and our attitude are the most powerful forces that we have. We can raise those voices to our neighbors, to our friends. We we should realize that most of the country is worried about climate change. Whether you're in a red state or a blue state, most people share this concern. So recognizing that first and so feeling free to use that voice, to express that and to elect people that want solutions and try to push solutions in our own backyard in, in mass, those are the most powerful things that we can do as individuals. Mark, I call you the climate czar inside Bloomberg Opinion. What have you learned about climate change that you didn't know before? I am learning that the changes are much more complicated than I even realized at first. The biggest thing, though, I think, is just the energy transition is going to be so expensive. I mean, I, Bloomberg NEF, I almost hate to say this number because it's so terrifying, but Bloomberg NEF estimated the world is going to have to spend $200 trillion to get our emissions down to avoid the worst climate disasters. And that sounds like a lot, but that is over the next between now and, say, 2050. And then if you start to add up the costs that happen, Claudia Assam, great economist, just wrote a column for us that said it's going to cost maybe $300 billion a year in lost worker productivity due to heat alone by 2050. And so you take those little effects and the effects of hurricanes and droughts and wildfires and just general health we haven't even gotten into the health effects of climate change, how diseases are moving there, are expanding their horizons and moving into new areas. All that stuff adds up. And so the biggest thing I've learned is to think about these things, the transition, the spending on green energy and the like as investments rather than costs, because the real costs are what happen if we don't do anything. What we're spending to avoid that stuff is an investment in a better future. Mark, we're out of time. Thank you for sitting down with me today. Thanks for having me. Mark Gongloff is a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion who specializes in covering the environment and climate change. You can find his work on the Bloomberg Opinion website and the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also find him on Twitter, at Mark Gongloff. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that fire and flooding aren't really polar opposites in this new era of climate change. They're actually manifestations of one another. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now, and please leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Hendrickson, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine vanden Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. 
We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.